I am reading today from our Old Testament verses. It is Psalms 139, 13 through 18. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I am with you. The New Testament scripture is found in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11. Now about the gifts of the spirits, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given, through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers, and to another, prophecy, and to another, distinguishing between the spirits, and to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. The scriptures forever and timelessly speak the truth. And it's always interesting, despite my struggles, despite yours, to see the ways in which that might apply. I'm speaking of the materialistic and reductionistic world in which we live. Our world in the Western world is not a world of miracles. At least we don't think of it that way. In fact, there's very little room for miracles. If we think about things that we would consider biblically miraculous, when was the last time you saw the casting out of a demon? Or when was the last time you saw someone have their hands laid on them who was lame or dumb or some other feature and get up and walk or start to speak and praise the Lord? And yet, we find this type of phenomena existent still in third world countries. 
in places where the materialism and the reductionism of our current culture isn't the dominant theme, where we don't rely so heavily on reason, but turn more to experience. If you think about it, the fact that we're here together today is a miracle. And yet, if we run back to logic and to our reductionistic roots, our materialistic roots, it's not a miracle at all. We would quickly reason away. Let me point to the not a miracle at all. The not a miracle at all part points to the fact that every piece of anything has a particular purpose by its own design. By its design. And so the fact that we have transportation is a function of design and a function of the strength and understood properties of various materials. Steel, carbon, and so forth are manipulated, manufactured into something we call a vehicle that enables us to get here. Gasoline is simply a form of liquid energy and its process can be chemically and physically understood, deriving from the crude or the coal or whatever it is that we pull from the earth itself. It's carbon-based. We can come up with explanations for every facet of it, but if you think about it, we each come from different geographic points, many of us further than we could walk comfortably in an hour or two. We have managed somehow to coordinate our calendar, to coordinate our watches mostly. This is an 1115 to 1120 church with a strong roll in about 1150. (laughs) Now how these people manage to keep jobs, I have no idea. It just amazes me that there is a whole group of people who manage to be responsible enough to get to work at 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning, but can't, for the life of them, get to church before 10.20 and get inside the sanctuary before 11.20. This is a piece of our culture that needs to change, a piece that uh, is incomprehensible at some level. But nevertheless... We've got watches, we've synchronized them, we at least know that 11 o'clock passed on our way in, and it's a miracle that we have all of that, right? So now we've coordinated calendar, coordinated hour and time, we've managed to find a way to get ourselves up and going in a very complex society. None of us grew the food that we ate this morning, and yet somehow we were able to get nourishment. None of us drilled for the oil or uh, refined the fuel, and yet our cars found themselves with enough gas to get here, and maybe we had to make a quick stop. We have our vehicles, this mode of transportation that took us miraculously, safely, a conglomerate of maybe a thousand miles. I don't know how many miles the collective of us drove this morning, but it's significant. To bring us to this place, we had to experience... So many, it's just, the variables are endless. It's phenomenal that God by His Spirit has spoken, and you listening have responded, and together we're here as a family. Today I'm talking about M is for Miracles. And it's a challenging topic, because I think at our root, 
are core. We know that as an article of faith, we must believe in them, and we want to believe in them, and some of them, some of us have experienced things we would call miracles. And yet we live in a culture that's so steeped in pragmatics and in the denial of the miraculous. Let's start with our passage in Psalm 139. You knit me together. My inmost being was made by you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Body is a living, breathing, working (coughs) miracle. It's a miracle. Its functions are so complex its genetic design, so fantastically elegant and complicated and irreplicable. The fact that we experience the degree of health given the hazards that surround us daily, not only man-created hazards, but environmental, naturally occurring hazards, that our bodies endure over time as long as they do. It's miraculous. David understands this at a level that I hope all of us appreciate. You, my friend, as a child of God, as a part of a magnificent creation, are fearfully, you're wonderfully created and made. Your body is a work of art. It's a bit of science, too. It's a chemistry class for advanced learners. It's a biological lab. Its beauty and complexity are unparalleled. David isn't speaking scientifically. He's not speaking to the processes of procreation. David is saying, Lord, at its core, existence, my existence, anyone's existence, is a mystery. It's a miracle. It's a complexity worth praising you for. It's something to celebrate. I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. I love that passage. And love the way it speaks poetically to the deeper truth that even science hasn't fully unraveled. I love the way it speaks mystically to the inner reality we all know. That each of us is a unique occurrence in the universe. No two set of fingerprints are exactly alike. And God knows us all by name. I would say God knows us all by number, too. Our second passage that was read, taken from 1 Corinthians 12, is a well-known one. I've used it many times, and you've heard it many times before that, speaking to the body life. 
a miracle of our corporate existence is this body referred to in 1 Corinthians 12. This non-corporeal body, that is to say, it isn't a body like I have a body, but it is a body of bodies endowed with different gifts, given different responsibilities and roles. And one of the gifts that is given is the capacity for the miraculous. What a thing to cultivate a sensitivity to, particularly in this culture. What if we were all to be a little more sensitive to the daily miraculous? What if we were to all be a little more attentive to the ways in which God speaks or moves that fall outside of our daily comprehensions? We're told in Scripture we can pray for or seek certain gifts. I've never sought to be a miracle worker. But I think all of us when we pray for somebody we care about who's genuinely in trouble or sick or something else, would hope that God by His Spirit acts, that there's something that occurs in that moment of speaking and willing, in that moment of entreat, entreating, seeking a divine answer and a divine will, looking for help beyond human comprehension. In that moment we would hope we would long for God's intervention. So perhaps in the end, developing a sensitivity to that, looking for a way to see, appreciating the miraculous might not be such a bad thing for us to cultivate as a body. Just as the fact that God calls us into existence together as a body is miraculous in and of itself. On the front of your bulletin, I've put together another acrostic, again with Scrabble. I'm sorry, this device is going to get old before I'm done with it. I uh, wanted you all to know that this word over here is not Adobe. It's a door. A door. We have at the center of this, we have family, of course. At the center is miracles. M is for miracle, our acrostic today. We have memories. We have abode, and that is not only where we live, but that's the collective of this place. This is God's house, the place where this body lives and meets and works. We have a door. A door is a portal, an entry. And of course, our door is open. We're always seeing who God is going to add by his miraculous act to this family. <clears throat> Isn't it true that when a baby is born, we say a miracle has occurred? Isn't that how we feel about it? Isn't that the way we see it when we see this precious thing that has somehow survived nine months in utero and been born? Don't we, don't we have a sense of the divineness of that, the miracle surrounding that? Isn't there wonder and awe that goes into that? There is. 
what wonder and awe we might feel when one is born into the family of God. What wonder and awe we might feel as someone comes through the portal, the door, to be a part of family. What a miracle that is. And of course we have the word do. We're human beings, not human doings. But at the same time, if we don't all step up with the gifts we've been given, family doesn't work very well. Body life deteriorates. The miracle seems less so. We have belief. And yes, logic plays a role in that. I put jig in, or actually I got help with that one from somebody. I did all of this except for three letters, and two of them got put in by someone else, and that was jig. And I liked it because let's dance together as a family, even if it is a country jig. Nap, that's growing increasingly important to me as a person as I grow older. We're part of a bigger whole. There is a sense of togetherness. We have members who are a bit zany. And sometimes collectively we can be that way. But it doesn't take away from our unity or our equality. It doesn't take away from our future or possibilities of growth. Every now and then we vie for something, that is to say we compete or might even be contentious. That's not the best part of family life, but it's certainly a part of it. And at the end of the day, we all know that in the nuclear family, the greatest miracle that's occurred in modern times is TiVo. (laughs) It has done more to save marriages and to save family than any invention I can think of in recent times. If you have something else you'd like to offer in that category, I'd be delighted to hear. But it was a wonderful way to use a a V and I think get some kind of double word score or something there. So enjoy that. It's just a bit of joy and a bit of humor, a bit of uh, something different. But the story I'd like to focus on today sermonically is a story of several miracles. They're not the the types of miracles we usually think of, but I want to put them into the context of what we've just talked about this morning so far. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we find that immediately what is happening in the first verses of chapter 8 is the mourning and burial, or burial and mourning of Stephen. Stephen, as you recall, was one of the early church's first deacons. Now, a deacon was an ordained position, that is to say, hands were laid on him. And if you understand the New Testament correctly, at this particular point in the church anyway, what had happened was Christ had the capacity to touch people or lay his hands on people and heal them. Through touch, Christ performed many a miracle, and even greater than through touch, through word. Now, we remember from John chapter 1, Jesus was the Word, and the Word, well, the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we find out that through, through John 1, that Jesus was the Word. He's the one who speaks, but he's more than that. He's the living Word. He's the one who, by his Word, speaks all that is into being, who takes chaos and organizes it. He is the one who, by his Word, accomplishes the impossible. 
but it is possible with him. So the word itself is a miracle. His presence is a miracle and a gift. We find that Stephen, the, the, Stephen was one who was a beneficiary of this process. Jesus laid his hands on his disciples and conveyed to them his gifts, his spirit, as it were. These disciples, in turn, could lay their hands on others and do the acts of Jesus that they were commissioned to do. Recall that while Jesus was even living, he commissioned the disciples to go forth and do what he did, to drive out demons, to heal people in his name, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to speak well of God, to give the good news. So Jesus' hands become the place of work and blessing. His word becomes even more powerful than that. And when he speaks to the disciples and lays hand on them, his gift is given them. And they in turn, when they lay their hands on others, the gift is given them. Stephen was ordained. That is to say, holy hands were laid upon him. He was given the spirit of Jesus Christ. And he was to do it, the purpose of that was to help him serve the church. To serve people in a very active kind of way, a very spiritual kind of way. Stephen is in the Jerusalem church and is arrested. Paul, known as Saul at the time, is instrumental in his arrest and is there holding people's cloaks as they wind up to throw rocks and stone him to death. Chapter 7. Chapter 8, Stephen is dead. He's been buried. And the church is mourning him. And the church is scattering because a great persecution is beginning. At this point, it's important to kind of understand we don't have the Christian church yet. At this point, you have a sect of Judaism known as the Way. At this point... In our story, Christ has ascended, the mission has gone forward, but it isn't a mission that's opposed to Judaism. It's a mission that goes beyond Judaism. It isn't a mission just to the Jews, it's a mission to the Gentiles also, or it's beginning to emerge that way. It will soon gel in that way. But the Jerusalem church is the main church. Peter and James are leaders of this church, very important figures in the Jerusalem church. And Paul is not yet an apostle. He's Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee and a persecutor of the followers of the way. Stephen Stoning has its own miraculous moments, if you read that story. But when we get to Acts chapter 8, this first part, we see him being mourned. Saul began to destroy the church, it says in verse 3. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It was not a happy time. Philip, one of the apostles, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Where did Jesus go when he wanted to get away? 
speak up? Desert, that was one place he went. Where else did he go when he wanted to get away? Sometimes he got in a boat and crossed the lake, and where did he find himself? Who did Jesus speak to at a well? A woman, a Samaritan woman. He found himself in Samaria from time to time. Jews didn't like to go there. They didn't want anything to do with Samaritans. And now that the persecution was on, coming from the Jewish people, Jewish faith, Philip goes to Samaria, as Christ had done before him. And with this spirit given him by Jesus from hands being laid on him from this commissioning he received, he begins to drive out evil spirits and heal people. That always opens doors, doesn't it? It's one of the geniuses of Adventism. We don't necessarily heal by the same way, but we have committed ourselves to the physical well-being of people and the mental well-being of people. We've committed ourselves in our institutions of learning and we've committed ourselves in our institutions of healing. Next to Catholicism, which has a billion people, the Adventist Church of 13 million has the largest private educational system in the world and the largest private hospital system in the world. We're committed to that. Philip goes and begins to be able to tell people the good news of who Jesus was because of the signs that he was able to do through the spirit of Christ that was in him. It's a wonderful thing. Miracles are occurring. The next set of miracles we find in a story of a man named Simon. Now, Simon was a sorcerer. We think of that in evil terms. He was a magic doer. We tend to think of that in negative terms as well because scripture tends to list it that way. But Simon doesn't appear to be wholly evil in this story, only misguided. Let's read. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. He must have been able to put on quite a show. He must have been something to have earned the title great power of God. And it goes to show that in Samaria, they didn't consider what he did evil. They followed him because he had made, amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip, followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. In other words, the miracle worker was being out-miracled. When the apostles, that's not a word I know, blame it on the, on the day, I don't know. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them 
and they too received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and yet a captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now there's a guy who believes in magic. Bad magic. He realizes he's misstepped and he is fearful immediately that a curse will be on him. Verse 25 says, After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And we hear nothing more of Simon the sorcerer. Simon reminds me in some respects of those men in the courts of Egypt that Moses encountered. Simon reminds me of a lot of people today who think of religion as a business. Who look for ways to be as impressive as possible on television. Who tout their miracles and healings. And who ask for money because, after all, one jet is just never quite enough. And then something wonderful happens with Philip. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Just a quick commentary. If you go to Israel, you will find black Jews. They are Ethiopian Jews. They are Jews from the time before this eunuch went up to Jerusalem to worship. And in fact, in parts of Africa, Sabbath has been kept from the dawn of time. It's an interesting legacy. Philip ran up to the, excuse me. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears, silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? 
The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This is a miracle of the church today. It's a miracle by which the Spirit grows his church and calls his people. It's a portal or a door. It's that opportunity when if we're sensitive, if we're listening, if we're paying attention, sometimes the Spirit says, go here. Stop what you're doing or go there. Say hello to this individual or look in on that one. Be neighborly to someone you haven't yet met. It's that sensitivity that sometimes we find is God's work. There's a question that needs to be asked or answered. There's love to be shared. There's something that God has called us to. And that something becomes powerful. It's as if the hands of Christ were laid upon that individual. I think Jesus intended it that way. As they talk, the eunuch is absorbing it all and says to Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And so Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then Philip explained to him that he didn't know yet the 28 fundamental beliefs. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, just as Jesus often was taken away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And so, John 3 is fulfilled. Jesus talking to Nicodemus. The spirit blows, but we don't know where it comes from or where it takes us. So many miracles here. A miracle of rebirth. A miracle of a nation being introduced to Christianity. Out of this experience, I hope you know, the Coptic church was born. The Coptic tradition. It's alive and well today. Ethiopia is challenged now because it's increasingly Muslim. Many parts of Africa are challenged now and deserve our attention and support because they are being pressed and persecuted on all sides by Muslims. But many of these countries have been Christian strongholds since the time of Philip. Since Philip was open to being led by the Spirit, since Philip jogged along a chariot and took a risk of saying, hey, what are you reading? Since he was invited through the Spirit to answer some questions and taught only of Jesus. Since when it came time to baptize somebody, he didn't hesitate, but gave him new birth in Jesus Christ and sent him away rejoicing. Who filled him with an understanding about the way in which Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies this man was familiar with in the Old Testament. The Spirit filled his heart in a way that had never been filled 
and the gospel was told, and the church was multiplied. It's a miracle. We like to think of the miracle as Philip disappearing, vanishing. But the miracle was the birth of the church. Chapter 9, we find yet another miracle. It's a miracle that some of us have had happen to us. It's a miracle called conversion. Gospels like Mark show gradual conversion. What does it mean when you've already grown up in a church, already grown up with religious education, already grown up in a system in which God is talked about and honored? How is it that we move to maturity and come to that place where we recognize Christ as Lord? The Gospel of Mark speaks to the process of the disciples' own conversion. From viewing Jesus as a teacher to hearing the centurion declare that surely he was the Son of God, that's transformation. And Paul becomes the model for a New Testament conversion that is what we call sudden conversion. Paul didn't need to be converted to the notion that the scriptures ought to be taken seriously. Paul didn't need to be converted to the notion that there was a God as opposed to no God. Paul didn't need to be converted from any of those things, or rather Saul, forgive my misspeaking. Saul needed to be converted because his mission was about hatred and about destruction and not about the love of God. Because as Saul goes to a new place, you see the Christians have left town. The followers of the way have scattered. So we find in 9, Paul still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. There's that moment of intervention. That moment when God steps in and says, no, I know you mean well, or I know you think you mean well, but why are you persecuting me? Why have you taken your religion in the wrong direction? Why is it that you're not concerned with being spirit-led? Why is it that you're not interested in the positive? Why is it that you're not about the miracles that I have been about in my ministry? Why is it that you want to be the angel of death? Saul is blinded, stopped dead in his tracks, humiliated, and enlightened. And in a moment, who are you, Lord, becomes answered, I am Jesus. In this moment of epiphany, a great miracle occurs. Saul of Tarsus 
becomes Paul, the Apostle. And as you know, the meaning of the name Paul is little. Of little consequence. Paul takes on a name of humiliation and goes on to be the founder, along with Peter and James, of the Christian church. Paul will be the one who establishes the church in Turkey and Asia Minor, Macedonia and Greece. Paul will be the one who in his four missionary journeys shares the good news of who Jesus Christ is with the world. Because he's seen it. Because in a moment he's been changed. Because in a miracle of confrontation and epiphany, he understands. Miracles are all around us. They're part of our every breath. They're part of our everyday life. They're part of things that we take for granted. Miracles are around us constantly because the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that was alive and working then, is alive and working now. We can still seek sensitivity to that spirit. We can still pray that our eyes are opened and that the miraculous around us becomes clear. We can still appreciate that as a family called together in service and grace, converted to a truth either in time and stages as the disciples were, or immediately in epiphany, as Paul was. But together we share the greatest miracle of all, the life of the redeemed. That's a miracle we're celebrating. And so, Lord, may the miracles of Christ in this context of family abound, that we may praise you forevermore. Amen.